Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolfork. And those of you who watch the, who are Patreon supporters, who get to watch these videos, and those who've listened to the podcast for more than three episodes know that I always say that every episode is special, right? But this episode is especially special because I am talking today with the archivist and the genius behind the African lookbook. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you get to see us talking about this. And it's a lookbook with pictures. So you're going to want to have a Patreon subscription. And honestly, why do you not? It's only $2 a month. I am certain that you have couch cushion money that you could donate to Black Women's Stitching. And if you can't, leave us a kind review. I am honored and delighted to have this person, this woman on stage with me today, whose work has been featured in the New York Times, who's been talked about at the Schomburg, who has been interviewed. And her, the foreword and the intro for her book feature like two of my faves, Edwidge Dandekat, whose work that I started reading back in 1994 in graduate school when Crick Crack came out. And so she's wrote an intro. And then Jacqueline Woodson wrote the foreword. And both of these women have so, and they're, they're both Black women writers. They're both, they both have sewing backgrounds. I am in a constant state of swoon <laughs> over this entire process. So welcome, welcome, Catherine McKinley. Thank, oh, thank you so you. much for being here with us today. I'm so grateful to have you. Thank oh, you and welcome. Thanks for inviting me. This is one of the things you find in your email that you get very excited about. So I am so happy to hear from you. I am so delighted. I mean, seriously, you have zero idea about how like psyched <laughs> I am. So I want to start with a bit about your premise. Mm -hmm. In the book, you say that the sewing machine and the camera mm -hmm. are two tools that, that arrived on the continent in a colonialist, almost a violent capacity, mm -hmm. right? Ways to extract things and resources from the continent and mm -hmm. to circulate images in the photography's sake to make that, to naturalize that. Can mm -hmm. you talk a bit more about, well, maybe folks might, can you tell a little bit, tell us, tell us a bit about the camera and how that works with the camera? And okay. then we can shift to the sewing machine. Yeah, both arrived within roughly a decade of each other. So in the mid 1800s, between the 1850s, 1860s, and they were in the beginning, these instruments that were reserved for the elites and for colonial masters. Mm -hmm. So there were very few of them. They trickled in on both sides. And in the case of the camera, it was an instrument that the British government said in particular in 1860, just around the time that it arrived, was meant to, it was meant to dominate, separate, categorize African peoples. It was a deliberate measure. It was a command made to everybody in the colonies to use it in 
particular in that way. So they would go on expeditions up into the hinterlands and take photos of people. And you see all these kind of literal catalogs where they've written the race or tribe of each member and have as many, have this proliferation of photos as a way to understand and codify the places that they were controlling. And they were also used in pseudoscience and in medical Uh explorations and medical administration. So that was one of the primary uses. And the secondary use was to take those photos and to circulate them, whether as postcards or just as photos that they would send in envelopes all throughout the colonies and back home to Europe to keep up a kind of morale about what the colonial project was. So the idea is that if I send this picture of these people in Sierra Leone to a colony in Jamaica or India or in the South Pacific or wherever it is, then I have um, the power to to keep everyone invested in this thing that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So the pictures that were taken just have this enormous reach all over the world. Mm -hmm. And even now as I'm collecting them, I may find a photo that could be from Malaysia of somebody in Nigeria, and then it's passed through three or four different hands in Europe Mm -hmm. or maybe in Japan, and then it finds its way to me in New York and becomes part of my collection. In a way, they're without the strictures of that economy, but... Even as a collector now, I'm still involved in this this kind of economy of image making and dissemination. At the same time, with the sewing machine, they arrived primarily for uniform making and also for the stitching of cloth. So they they arrived in the colonial forts along the coast of West Africa, and they were used to either stitch these pieces of cloth. Many of them were where the cotton may have been extracted from Africa or from India. They may have gone back to Europe, been dyed in India, returned to Africa, and then they were being used. They were being traded primarily in the slave trade in exchange for human lives. So a two-yard piece of indigo cloth in particular might buy one human being or three human beings. You can see in the slave ledgers these, these kinds of transactions. So those sewing machines were being used to sew the edges on those things and then also to make uniforms that were used in missionary projects or Mm -hmm. other things. And again, the uniform was being thought of as a way, as it was used as a means of control. You got either status because you wore the uniform of a low-ranked soldier or you wore a missionary uniform that gave you social status even though people were resisting that status. They were constantly resisting, but also it was being reinforced. So for the book, I was sitting one day at a dinner with a couple of white men who are the biggest collectors of African photographies. And they have these vast collections. One of them owns a museum in Germany, on and on. And we were sitting at dinner talking and I was bored bored with the conversation, bored with my position at the table. And I think I just blurted out that for the African continent and for African women, the sewing machine and the camera were the two most important commodities. And they all looked at me like, what? And they challenged it. They were like, what are you talking about? There was the car. There was various machinery. There was power in and of itself. And I was like, power didn't reach into most people's homes. Most people didn't have access to automobiles. Mm -hmm. But the camera and the sewing machine were two things that became democratized pretty quickly. And so what do we make of that? They were two things that African women did have more access to than not and had a certain kind of control and were able to 
author themselves through those things. So I just, I got stubborn about the idea and I said, okay, whether or not you can punch holes in my argument, I'm going to take the argument all the way with this archive and I'm going to see what I can make of it. I love that story. And I thank you for being stubborn. (laughs) Because if they want to say that the automobile was so democratizing, when you think about the Nana Benzes, for example, Mm -hmm. the reason they could have those Benzes is because they had fabric. And the reason they had fabric was because of the sewing machine. So absolutely. (laughs) I wanted to think about, I was thinking about just, I I would just love to hear your opinion on this, this from the photography side. There's an African philosopher who I absolutely love, Akil Mabembe. And he has mm-hmm. an article called Necropolitics. Do you know that mm-hmm. piece? Yes. And in the piece, he talks about part of the colonial project is to convince the people that are being dominated that mm-hmm. everything is fine. And yeah. so he was talking about, he had this one phrase that never left me. And it was, enshrine their despoilment. Okay. Yeah. And he talked about that when you have a kind of colonial regime, that there is a way that the despoilment, the destruction, the violation of the colonized people mm-hmm. becomes enshrined. And it feels like the photograph is part of that. It is, right? absolutely. The photograph itself, I would say absolutely. and But also the cloth. I think what people are wearing very much so. I'm wearing, I don't know if you could see, but these are two different African wax prints. Yes. Made by the Blisco Company, which is one of the oldest, most important um, best wax companies. It's based in Holland. And this cloth that we, that's synonymous with Africa in many ways, Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest colonial products. Yes. Uh, The Blisco Company's, if you go to Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, yeah. you'll see their their emblem in the wrought iron gates of, of the fort. Are you and serious? So, yes. And it's something people don't. I did. Oh, I've never been to Africa, so I've never been. Uh-huh. But I have read about the castles. And of course, so yeah. I know, you know, I had students that have gone on trips. I did not know that. Blisco yeah, when you climb the stairs to the governor's, like wow. the turret where the governor stands and where the governor's quarters were. You'll see the Vlisco, which was originally Van Blackner. You'll see their their emblem in the in the gate, along with King William's emblem. My so, goodness! So there's nothing. I don't think like these bright displays. I wear Vlisco. I'm very aware of the history. I've been in the archives at Vlisco. The company itself has the feeling. It has the air of a concentration camp. Mm. And I know that I'm not the only one that said that because I think I know of about three or four other black women that have been able to enter the archives. It's yeah. very hard to get access. And they've yes. all had that same feeling of this ominous place with where the grounds don't feel quite right. It feels like there's a kind of destruction. But I, I think that there's no nothing more than this wax print that really is that kind of enshrinement because yeah. we all wear it and we do not understand. Even me, as much as I know the history, I have a love for it. Yes. And it's intoxicating. It and is yeah. kind of like, talk about hashtag problematic faves, right? Yes. Because okay. what's happening with Blisco, at least in my opinion, from just from, from stories as of two weeks ago, there was this conglomerate of African owners yes. who wanted to buy into yes. Blisco so that they could have profit sharing and they could have all of this. And yes. it, the whole deal was broken down. It was all derailed. Because yep. of one disgruntled white person. Yeah. It was a mostly Nigerian contingent and they millions, yes. millions of dollars to invest in the company. And Blisco is on the verge of bankruptcy and has been looking for a long time. They've been courting 
investors and a sale of the company. And they just, they, after six months or so of negotiating, they undercut the whole thing. But when I visited, I told them of a friend of mine who's a dyer, a very famous dyer, Marcy Okansi in Accra. Mm-hmm. And she told me that she married a Dutch man and went to Holland for maybe a decade. And she told me that she had worked in the factory. So when I got there, I showed them a picture of her and I said, she worked here in the factory. And they said, no, they were so upset by that. They said, no, it's impossible that she had ever worked here in this factory. And I was saying, but why? And he said, the only way she could have ever worked here is someone who was making up the cloths, meaning literally that she was sitting there folding them and putting them into boxes to ship. And I said, how is that? And he said, no, first of all, no non-Dutch person worked in this factory until the 80s. And then they started to invite the French and a few other Europeans. But he said no African had, had worked in the factory until during that era and much later. So <laughs> it was just, it was stunning. I was like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's like the it's like the more, and then I, I was on Instagram just the other day, they posted this, they had Blisco, because I don't know if I followed them or they, because I, I know I don't follow them on, on Instagram, mm-hmm. but they popped up on my feed somehow. And it was this gorgeous spread. Uh-huh. African woman with this gorgeous fabric on this beautiful gown that she had, that was she was wearing. And the caption was, Something about a space of our own. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I wrote, who is our? Who's our? You mean the Dutch? Because you cannot mean Black people or Africans yeah. in any way, considering what you have done to keep Black people away from the yeah. profit side of your business. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's incredible. Not good. You can you can yes, yeah, so you can take the colonizer out of the colony, but you can't take the the, the colonizing out of the colonizer because no, it's really, and they do have they have a few factories um, in Ivory Coast and Ghana, and those are, if you look at the history of the anti-colonial movement, mm-hmm. the kind of rise and fall of those factories, it it's hand in hand with what is, goes on. Say on more the, about that. I'd love to hear more about that. There was a period during the Rollins era. So this would, this would be in the 1980s. Rollins stepped in and they started to renegotiate like what under the new regime, they started to renegotiate what the factory would look like. And he insisted as many other governments did that the factories there, if, Cloth is 60% or more of the things imported into this country. We need to control yes. the manufacturing of cloth. Yeah. And so at different times, governments have banned imports, yes. but they don't have anything else to replace it. So he was negotiating for control of the Blisco plant in Ghana. And he did an exchange for, I think it was for palm oil. And, and palm oil is used in the production of soap. And so he, there was an exchange that was made, but Blisco left the company with very little of the machinery. It was old machinery. Within a decade, it was falling apart. They couldn't get access to dyes. So there was a whole period where every cloth that was made was this kind of funny yellow. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. funny yellow and blue. It was two tones versus the kind of complexity that you That's see right. here. That's right. And, very soon, everyone had to start begging the Dutch 
to come back in. And there's been this kind of cycle of abuses and exchanges and negotiations. And if you visit the plants there, like GTP Ghana Textiles Production is owned by Blisco. Right. And I've been to the plant and the workers have to strip down and put on these jumpsuits during the day. And then when they leave and come to the gate, they have to strip naked. They do body cavity checks because they're afraid of people taking pictures and because the Chinese will rip things off so quickly. So they're very afraid of designs being leaked outside. I saw uh, that. Yeah. I, I, so you I, see I, this, hor- this horrific treatment of workers. In the of garment, textile workers yeah. and garment workers in manufacturing plants. Yeah. That's absolutely and true. And the chemicals are bleeding into the ground and the water supply. And it's, it's really it's something else. It's a pro. It is a problem, and I was reminded. I spoke earlier this year with Iwan Obignon. Yeah, he did the film Wax Brick. Yeah, um, and so we talked a lot about that, and it's just so. I found it incredibly ironic that the yeah. that Blisco was annoyed. Maybe they're more than annoyed with mm-hmm. Chinese imports and Chinese knockoffs, and how also they're also very good. So they yeah. put two pieces of fabric next to each other, and it was they're almost good. impossible to tell which was real and which was not. But what's happening now is that they're not, the Chinese are not necessarily doing the wax process. So they'll just rip off the design and stamp it on the cloth, but it doesn't have any of the layers of the wax. And people don't, one thing that people don't understand necessarily about fashion in Africa is that people like they, first of all, it has to be accessible. Blisco cloth is very expensive. It's a hundred dollars for a a five yard piece, which is how it's sold. But also that people don't, like Ghanaians, the land of gold, Ghanaians don't necessarily need gold jewelry, pure gold jewelry. Right. They will be happy with something that it's about the shine and the energy yes. and the charge of an object. Yes. And that's something people don't understand. They'll be like, oh, Ghanaians are stupid. They don't care about <sighs> real gold. But it's no, we, we, we care about <laughs> the representation. We care about its use in these other like more esoteric ways. It doesn't have to weigh something on the scale. So it's the same with cloth is that people are willing, people love a piece of cloth that's new or novel or has colors you haven't seen before. It's like the pension is for what's new, what yes. keeps us ahead of of styles. That's right. That's you know, right. African women are very proud of of being like the forerunners and being the style setters. And is and this is the thing I find so frustrating in when, when I start to think so much more about wax print and this kind of colonial relationship, because mm-hmm. if it was not for the input of African women, Blisco mm-hmm. would not now own the copyright or the trademark and the exclusivity mm-hmm. to all of these designs, like thousands of designs that oh, yeah. they own yeah. that came from the hearts and minds and creative energy from black women, yeah. African women. Who they who they who get completely cut out of the upper level, not just the decisions, but the profit. Right. You but know? at the same time, a lot of African women built mega fortunes on trading. Yes, yes, yeah. that's true. But that's I true. know what you mean. It's not they're not part of that. They're not able to buy in that intense way that builds wealth in that. It can build intergenerational wealth. And that was the point from Iwan that I kept live for me was she was like, whenever you buy Blisco, you are helping to promote the intergenerational wealth of Dutch children. Exactly. And I want my purchases <laughs> to support intergenerational 
yes. wealth for African children, for Ghanaian children. So I was also wondering, let me t- what do you think about this? As, as I was reading, because the sewing machine as an object is something that I find has been therapeutic for me. I'm not going to, some people say sewing is my therapy. I say, nah, therapy is my therapy. Sewing is something I do because I'm passionate for it and I love it and I love yeah. making things. But I was also thinking that there's also the ways that this can also be very negative. And mm-hmm. it turns me back to Audre Lorde. So Audre Lorde says, of course, from the, the essay, The Master's Tools, and she's like, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. And but then Bell Hooks would follow decades later to say that, no, that's the only thing that can. She has this counter position. I tend to be on Audrey's thought about this. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast, and I'm speaking today with Catherine McKinley, the author of the African Lookbook published by Bloomsbury. And when we return, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation after a very short break. Stay tuned. Hey, friends. Hey. The Stitch Please podcast is about to publish its 100th episode. That's right, 100 episodes. As part of the celebration, we are launching 100 by 100 to help us get 100 more Patreon supporters by the 100th episode publication date on September 15th, 2021. 100 additional Patreon supporters would give us the financial stability we need to hire editorial and production help. You can find the links to our Patreon in the show notes. Thank you so much for considering this and thank you current and future Patreon supporters. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast and we are returning to the fantastic conversation with Catherine McKinley about the African lookbook. What do you think about that in the context of the sewing machine or we think about the sewing machine and the camera have these two things been master's tools that through your work, through the gorgeous archive that you've constructed, do you feel like it's dismantling these negative racist ideas that could be considered master's house? I'm not sure. What do you give it? Do you get, do you give both the camera and the sewing machine that same weight? I think it's a yes. And with both. So I'm with Audrey and I'm with Bill because I think they, and I I think it's a dialectic. It, It, should be able to exist together. Yes. Even now I feel I have mixed feelings about the sewing machine and like in most of West Africa in particular for young women and girls, there are very few choices, career choices, like for the mass of people, unless they're educated. Right. The seamstress thing, there's catering, hair braiding and trading in the market. You know, those are like the four, there are four or five kind of core possibilities. And it's so narrow and it's all tied around the domestic sphere. Mm-hmm. And it's all tied, even when it's tied to beauty, it's, there's a way we revere the beauty that is African women's beauty. And at the same time, there's something deeply sad to me about it because it's that kind of insistence that you look this way that you invest this way that your future depends on being beautiful in these very very strict yes corners yes so it's everything because at the same time that beauty has an enormous power textiles like textiles have an enormous power and then i think it's also just on a base level it's a testament to what people did with what they had Yes. I did an exhibition in Brooklyn two years, three years ago mm-hmm. called Auntie. Yes. And it was an homage to the Auntie figure. 
And then I was part of an exhibition in in Morocco just before COVID. So it was February, just as COVID was hitting. And it was about the the gaze. And there's when we talk about African photographies, there's a lot of preoccupation with the gaze. Yes. And people use that term a lot. And I started like chafing because I was just like these each photo has such a depth of history. Yes. And we're still stuck on the gaze. And I'm not belittling, there's nothing wrong with this argument of the gaze. It's a very important thing. But it's almost like a lot, I find a lot of people who curate don't study. Mm-hmm. And so they select these photos. And then like in Morocco, they were just having the most facile dis- discussion about the gays. And they were just like taking everything they knew about black women and attaching it to the gays and attaching it to these photos. And I was like, these, fo- these women in these photos have their own histories. They're African women. They're not African-American women. There, there's just it begs for so much more depth in the conversation. Yes, I got so frustrated with that. So when I came back and I was working on the book more, I was thinking I want to push past this, and yes. I want people to look not just at someone's eyeballs. That's right. But what does that button say? What does this yes. thing in the corner say? What is the like her grasp, the way her hand is, or her foot? Because yes. it expresses a lot. One foot, a woman can look completely content and the foot is twisted up in a way that lets you know there was some tension in the taking of the photograph. You talked yeah. about that in the Schomburg interview about one of the photos and how the, yeah. one of the photos, she, a woman was posed very like unnaturally. It was mm-hmm. hard to even read her full facial expression because it just felt like a mask. And then yeah. her foot was twisted. And I think either you or the um, person, I think it was Amy, you were speaking with that foot was. So I started thinking like we can have another conversation about the gaze what do you see in her eyes? What's important? Yeah. But what else can we read in this? And I, I really appreciate the way that the narratives you attach to your photographs really do force us not to circumvent it because we want to get around it, but mm-hmm. because it's just that's not the center of the story, right? Yeah, you're exactly. not you don't you're not interested in what a white supremacist heteronormative gaze yeah. might necessarily look like and what it might do. We already know we already know what the gaze and we're saying gaze right. called G A Z E this this gaze that has mastery attached to it that has dominance right. and supervision attached to it and mm-hmm. that and but that's not the only story of these photographs and to give that gaze primacy is to reproduce the colonial project in and of itself yeah. which is what you're unraveling and then people dismiss the photos they're like oh this is a colonial photograph and she's exploited so I'm done with it there and I just, I think that's really short-sighted. Like I have a friend, he's a collector and a photographer in Senegal. And we have this little ongoing argument. I get it. Like for him, he only deals with African photographers making the images. He's not interested in any colonial photographer whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And that's a very particular niche. Mm-hmm. And I, I collect that way as well. But I'm not going to throw away a photo that I just showed you. Right. Because... The photographer is not African. Yeah. You know, and I'm not going to back away from evidence of exploitation because I think people that dismiss those photographs and they go home and they watch some garbage on TV. Right. Or they do something else that replicates or even goes into something that's worse. So you walked away from our history and understanding the intensity of something because 
that was authored by somebody else, but then the woman in the photo is authoring herself. Yes. And that's what, that's what I'm interested in. And I think that's the investment that is, that really sets your work apart. And so when you were talking before about some folks who might, they like, they curate without study. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't understand how you do that. I don't understand how one can curate without studying. And maybe that goes back to a question I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the difference in your mind between a collector and a curator? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between someone who likes to collect and build and store Mm-hmm. And someone who is engaged in a deliberate curatorial process that might be driven by certain ideologies, certain mm-hmm. perspectives, certain values or principles or ethics. Yeah. Can you talk a bit well, more about I think that? that they're probably in the best circumstances, they overlap a lot. They're okay. certainly collectors. I have friends that buy expensive paintings and keep them in drawers and catalog them. And it's just about that ownership and it's about the market and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I have friends who are probably more like myself, where I didn't go and do a lot of formal study of photography. Uh-huh. I collected and I got really interested in what was going on. And I started reading and reading, or you collect and collect and you start seeing similarities or overlaps in yes. what you have. So they can, the best collectors are curators or engage in curatorial work, and the best curators. May probably don't collect, or maybe they might collect, they may not, <laughs> but they're hopefully engaged in study at that level and not study of the market, but study of the, right. the object and, and what it means. Because something that I often say is, and I tell this to students and to anybody, I'm like, I feel that sometimes when it comes to stories of Black life, experiences mm-hmm. of Black life, there's things that, that these things are widely circulated. They're yeah. pushed out for, for every, even like the mm. most sacred moments of our death or murder yeah. just flung out. Like it's just Everywhere. so much entertainment. And mm-hmm. what it feels to me like there's a constant demand for consumption mm-hmm. without digestion. Exactly. It's just, just take it, bring it, eat it. Yeah. And no one is stopping to think, wow, wow. I did not know that at one of the, at Elamina Castle, for example, mm-hmm. that Blisco has their fucking initial in iron. Yeah. What? Like, <laughs> what? Mind blowing. I, I have to say that I was walking that line. I was doing my dialectic with Blisco, but I really, I had a max when I heard about the, the factory and like this recent deal making. And I'm starting to really wonder, I don't want to sell it. I don't want to throw out all my clothes. But <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. Of course. Let's go in, let's see, like 1987, I think was it the first time. Because I remember you couldn't get it easily. You had to go way out to New Jersey. You either, they sold it and like you had to buy 60 yards, right. which cost thousands of dollars. So right, we would right. either get like a group of people together to go in on, try to choose one or two to buy that many yards. It was crazy. Or else you could go way out in New Jersey to some back lot warehouse and you could buy a six or 12 yard piece. And again, I had a friend that, that danced at Alvin Ailey and she would get a bunch of dancers together who wanted cloth and we'd all pool our money. We'd drive out there. We'd fight over which one. Nobody would be satisfied. You know? <laughs> but I would always get the catalog. <laughs> so I have the Blisco catalogs going back to that time. And if you look at somebody should really do a study of the evolution of the campaigns mm. because it went from a very 
folksy girl in the village thing through all these different iterations. And it's fascinating. Wow. How they hooked people and what they're doing. And when they started really going after the African market, like on a very emotional level. Yes. Like and a, your the, mother's heritage level. So that's the thing that gets me. The thing that gets me is a diasporic person who has, of course, roots in Africa, but doesn't know what they are, doesn't know yeah. what those connections are. Mm-hmm. I look at this and I think African fabric, African fabric. And yeah. then I'm like, now I'm kicking myself. I'm like, why can't I not, why am I not naming batiks? Why am yeah. I not naming Adire? Why am I not naming Kente, which are actually African fabrics? Yes. And yet the thing that's the most desirable is the stuff done by the white man who only wants black people's money and yeah. never wants to profit share. But we'll take yeah. all the ideas, all the art, and you will love it. And mm-hmm. we will love it. And Dutch people will continue to get richer and richer off of yeah. our money that we pull together our pennies or we do whatever. Yeah, we see it as something that we claim, you know, it is like we claim it, but they don't claim us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They don't see anything wrong with it. They don't see anything wrong with the holding the way that they're holding things. Mm -hmm. They don't see anything wrong or inappropriate or bad Mm -hmm. about the way that they are conducting their business, even though we now have vocabularies to explain exactly why it is wrong. Yeah. And exactly why it is true. So, but that, of course, that's, I I would not expect anything different. It's always, when you hold all the cards, when you have all the power, you really don't have to care what anybody else thinks. And unless you're going to have some kind of internal revolution Mm -hmm. um, and get, develop a kind of ethical something, conscience that Mm -hmm. says, oh, wow, maybe I need to atone or repent or have some repair for the way that this company has participated in disrupting the lives of many people on the continent. What is their incentive to change? So I can't remember his name. I'm very sorry to, I just, I've been trying to think of it now, but he's a historian out of Yale and he talks about how color in West Africa was more effective in domination than the gun. And he's talking about cloth in particular and people's desire for certain kind of consumption of goods, which was primarily cloth. Wow. They didn't have to trade guns. They could trade cloth Had that much power within those societies. And you were explaining in the book about how these became part of dowries, that Mm -hmm. the reason that the the wrap is like five or six meters long is because that's something that you can use part of it and then you don't have to use all of it and then you can reattach it. And this is something that will grow with you. Yeah. Go as you go through your marriage, as you go through adulthood. And and so that it is absolutely important or what Christina Sharp calls in the wake, Mm -hmm. you know, that black in the U S you know, like live within the wake of slavery and that these same things from back in the day, they Mm -hmm. show up and reverberate later. It doesn't surprise me that the, the search that you described of employees is a mm-hmm. remnant of the colonial era, that this is a structure that was already in place. And we're like, we'll just keep doing yeah. I think Richard Wright was talking about the gold mines and being right. the cavity checks at the gold mines. It's so, just, oh my God. You know, they're afraid of, they're worried that somebody's going to have the corner of a piece of cloth or a photo from a phone or something. And they check their the phones. The Chinese are that effective in, in ripping. In, yeah. The other thing that's really hurt Blisco is that the Chinese companies have, they're producing cloth and they're sending it to Ghana in particular, but not just Ghana. And I understand that they're they're quick 
where they focus on language. And so they're teaching merchants local languages, not just like the dominant languages in, in various countries, but local, very specific local trade languages, mm-hmm. and then sending them like to the northern part of the country, to all the places that Blisco has traditionally not worried about accessing because the colonial mar- model with Blisco was that everybody stayed back in Holland. They sent yes. the cloth down. They never visited. They sent the cloth right. to the female traders on the coast. Right. And it all worked out from the coastal markets in yes. their own networks. But the Chinese are going in and they're going and creating new markets in very remote areas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and mastering the language so that they can trade really effectively. So, so a- that has really undermined Blisco a and lot. It's undermined that whole. It's interesting because I do wonder sometimes what role xenophobia plays in attention being given to Chinese manufacturers, Mm -hmm. right? You can recognize like the harm or the damage that this, that, uh, that, uh, that Chinese manufacturers come in, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yet we seem to be okay with the exploitation that the Dutch has been doing for 176 years. Yeah. Right? But oh no, not the Chinese. That's <laughs> a bridge too far. Um, I remember you described one, uh-huh. it was the one you just caught, just showed us as the Mona Lisa. You described it. Maybe it was one of the Citibe ep- images. Maybe I'm not sure. It's not actually one woman. So it's not, it's not a Mona Lisa, but it, it just has that. It has an imprint in people's consciousness that's similar yes. to a Mona Lisa. It's not an actual Mona Lisa, but, you know, but this is a, it's a brilliant photo. It was taken three years after independence in Mali. Okay. And it's actually a portrait of siblings. People think they're lovers, but they're siblings. Oh, yeah. I saw it. I was like, look at them. Yeah. (laughs) But their intimacy is just so, it's so lovely. But it's also this kind of idea of like indigeneity and how, what is Malian for that era? And yeah. how quintessentially African this photo is, even though they're wearing Western dress. And what does it mean when someone like this is another untitled, undated one from Congo of the lady with the gorgeous, the flower yeah. in her hair and the flower necklace? Just whose room is this? What does this? And again, the, the there. And I guess what I love about the way that you have exploded the idea of the gaze is that we are intended. At least that's what that's that we are invited. I see an invitation in your work to think about how these women thought about themselves. Yeah. Not, oh, let's look at them in a way that is objectifying, but Mm -hmm. let's read the story they are trying to tell us about themselves. Yeah. Composition, through the, through background, through wardrobe, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Because even those flowers you think about, it's not, um, it's not the, it's not your idea of the go-to in an African studio to wear mm-hmm. flowers in that way. Interesting. Uh, so you wonder like, why is it because it was it directed by the photographer or is it just brings all these kinds of, I haven't seen that many photos with flowers. Yeah. So it's it's flowers true. Used like that. Just at the woman who is, what looks like she's being fortified by mm-hmm. all of her ancestors. Yes. That's what cloth is like. People wear cloth to have that volume all across the continent, especially West Africa, the idea of volume. And people ask me, why are so many people posed with like their hands on their knees, the legs spread and they look big. So they look like they're sitting like this. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And again, it was like volume was prestige. It was power. It was so posing in that way with layers of cloth was always a display of one's power and one's 
Yes. So, and we see that. You wouldn't want to have on small cloth. No, no one's wearing small cloth. Yeah. Life, life is too short to deal with small cloth. We yeah. want big. Right. <laughs> Catherine, can you tell me a bit about what's next for you? What is your next step? You've got this amazing book, and I do hope that your next step includes coming to Charlottesville, Virginia. <laughs> I would love that to be part of the plan, and, and that I got to be the one that got to interview you. So yeah, that's part of the it. plan. In my mind, but what are your plans for your life? In addition to my plans for your life, I want to do a lot of exhibitions because the the idea of the archive is I'm uneasy. I'm very proud and happy to have all these things in my house and whatever. They give me immense joy, and at the same time, the idea is to really make this a resource for others. So. Before COVID, we were talking about doing a couple shows in, in Ghana in particular. It's not going to work. Probably We probably can't get back that, that plan. But I got a call today from somebody in Brazil who wants to try to do something. I'm looking into more ways of exhibiting the work. And I, I met with a book group in Accra last weekend. And some of it was wild. The one woman had the most gorgeous picture of a great aunt or somebody with her sister and they had like invitation is to discover the stories these women are telling about themselves. Mm -hmm. That I think at least for me helps me think about the story I'm telling about myself. That's exactly. And I love that. At some part in my life, I realized I have my DNA results and I want these things, but a lot of it you can't have. So what do you, you know, like, what do you, where do you go then? And what can you have? Exactly. How can that be just as much like the, How can that feed you just as much? And that's the beauty of this offering. That is the beauty of your book as an offering. And I thank you for it. Thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, everybody. We have been talking with the ever amazing Catherine McKinley of the McKinley Collection and about her amazing book, The African Lookbook. Please check this book out from independent retailers and book lovers and any place you go to buy books. But Local is best. I've been learned local is best. Let's keep the local economy of booksellers alive and well. And if you need some ideas about good independent booksellers, hit me up. I can definitely tell you something. But thank you. Thank you again, Catherine. This was wonderful. Yes. I'll see you. We're going to sit down and sew. Yes. Virginia. And she said that on tape about one. The first was the trip and the second is sit and sew. I promise you both. (laughs) And all this right You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out with, to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcasts Um, directories or services allow for reviews but for those who do for those that have a star rating or just ask for a few comments if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the stitch please podcast that is incredibly helpful 
Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. <laughs>